So Dave Epstein, can you give us a quick overview here at the start of the 10,000 hours rule? Yeah, I mean, what you think about it probably depends a little bit on where you heard about the 10,000 hours rule, if you've heard about it. David Epstein is the best-selling author of The Sports Gene and Range. Very roughly speaking, it's this idea that there's kind of no such thing as, as innate talent and that when you see excellent performance, that's just a manifestation of 10,000 hours of practice. That's sort of the most common version of the 10,000 hours rule. And it has been name-checked and gets name-checked all of the time still today. Like, I hear coaches and players reference this thing literally every week. Where have you heard it pop up? There's not an industry I'm aware of that hasn't touched in some way or another. I've gotten it on everything from solicitations from investment groups that go in detail about how they apply the 10,000 hours principles to how they choose investments, to a clothing company that I'm getting ads from every every week now that embraces the 10,000 hours principles. You know, there's even an instance where a soccer coach showed me like a map that he had to take kids, you know, from age five to 18 with exactly 10,000 hours uh, <laughs> of practice all, all the way to... 10,000 Hours, the, you know, a hit song by Macklemore, which I have to say is pretty catchy and that I have run to. I was made a slave in 10,000 hours. I'm so damn close, I can taste it. 10,000. Yeah, many people are obsessed with this. Why have you become obsessed with this? When you and I were at Sports Illustrated together, I was essentially the science writer at Sports Illustrated. Yes. And the 10,000 hours rule, or what scientists know it as a deliberate practice framework, was the most important piece of research that has ever existed as it pertains to the development of, of sports skill. And so I naturally, I wanted to look into it and I wanted to write about it. But the more I looked into it, the more I realized that the science did not say what people were being told it said. It was, you know, in fact... Not true. Dave Epstein is no stranger to busting myths about sports and human performance. It's kind of his thing, actually. So today, as we attempt all sorts of fresh starts in this new year, Dave joins me to dive into a particularly pernicious and seductive idea. That 10,000 hours of deliberate practice is all you need to master anything. So where did this concept come from? And how did so many of us get conned? We'll take about half an hour to explain. I'm Pablo Torre. It's Tuesday, January 4th. This is ESPN Daily. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. 
So, Dave, I am very glad to have you back on the show again today. This is your third time. This is sort yeah. of like an SNL hosting thing. You're an elite club. <laughs> I think you're fully established as our lead sports science correspondent. You're in a closet and me getting invited <laughs> here is quite like SNL. <laughs> Not exactly 30 Rock, but it's as close as ESPN podcasting gets, arguably. But part of the reason why I want to bring you on today specifically is because the new year is upon us. It is 2022 somehow. Everybody has these resolutions. They're goal setting for the year. They're trying to get more fit. They're trying to achieve career goals, all of the stuff that... I sympathize with, certainly. But I turn to you because, I mean, Dave, is it fair to paint you as a contrarian or do you just organically wind up as one <laughs> given the sort of research and journalism that you do? Gosh, that's a good question. Yeah, I wouldn't have considered myself as a contrarian. I think it's it's more that my writing selects for things that are more contrarian because I guess I have a feeling that I sort of want to correct something if I think it's a if it's a misconception. So, <laughs> yes, you are far more prone to ruining people's established scholarship than you are their Thanksgiving dinners. That is fair to say. <laughs> so, listen, the 10,000 hours rule as we discussed at the top here, is a stride American culture, global culture around self-improvement in ways that are staggering to me. But trace for us how we even got to it, because it predates all of the meme culture around it. Where did this come from originally? Yeah, I mean, among scientists who study development of skills and development of expertise, it was super famous. The researcher who's most associated with this work was a guy named Anders Ericsson at Florida State. And the most impactful paper was one from 1993. And the most impactful piece of that was this research that looked at, at a group of violinists, at 30 violinists who were in a world-class music academy. It separated them into three groups, the future international soloists, the professional musicians, and then the lowest level was deemed the future teachers. <laughs> wow, that's some real shade from Anders Ericsson. Yeah. But they were deemed that by, the, by their instructors. <laughs> um, but what the study found was that the best group, the 10 best, had averaged uh, about 10,000 hours of this deliberate practice, this effortful, like very engaged practice uh, by about the age of 20, and the lesser two groups had less. And as Erickson and others looked around other domains, they started to say like, hmm, you know, the top groups often kind of hover here or there around this 10 years or 10,000 hours. But really, it, the 10,000 hours came out of that, that tiny, tiny study of, of violinists. So that research, Dave, as I understand it, it was a big deal for the scientific community, but not so much the world beyond it. But in 2008... That is when Malcolm Gladwell, the best-selling author, an extremely clever guy, he decides to turn his attention to Erickson's work. And how would you begin to describe Gladwell's influence here? I would say that he's one of the most famous nonfiction writers in the world, and it's yes. it maybe his most famous piece of writing is one of the chapters in early in his book Outliers, which is about, you know, what causes success, essentially. He calls the 10,000 hours this magic rule to success, that if you put in 10,000 hours of deliberate practice, you will become great. That idea, forgot, obviously is very appealing. And so it just sort of spread like wildfire. I mean, I remember Gladwell straight up writing in his book that, quote, 10,000 hours is the magic number of greatness, end quote. And all of it, Dave, I mean, it felt ready-made for marketing. It's such a nice, round and tidy number, 10,000 hours. 
Yeah, and it was that it was that tidy roundness that caught my journalistic eye in the first place. I'd been reading a whole bunch of other scientific literature about skill acquisition from people learning how to speed type to people learning how to play music to computer programmers. And one thing that was very clear to me was that even when people did the same thing, they progressed at vastly different rates. Take chess, for example. Some of the best research shows that it takes about 11,053 hours on average to reach international master status in chess. That's one down from grandmaster. But some people made it in 3,000 hours and other people were being tracked at 25,000 and they still hadn't made it. So 11,053 hours rule, you know, was fine, but it didn't tell you anything about the reality of skill acquisition. Nobody had 11,053 hours, right? Mm. And so I started making fun of the 10,000 hours, calling it the 10,000 hours plus or minus 10,000 hours rule. (laughs) And so as you're checking under the hood on this rule that Gladwell is applying to everyone from Bobby Fischer to the Beatles to Bill Gates, I know you also were reaching out to Anders Ericsson himself. Again, he is the actual scientist whose research was underneath all of this. What did you learn from talking to him? Yeah, I mean, I talked to him uh, numerous times over the years about this, and he was upset about the way that his work had been translated into the public. He was upset about this 10,000 hours rule idea, okay? Because he said, "I, I never claimed that was a rule. That was a number in this violin study. I don't want people fixating on, on the rule. That said, He was even more uh, extreme in his view of the fact that there is no such thing as talent. Gladwell in Outliers says like, yes, definitely there are differences in talent. And then sort of says, but 10,000 hours rule. Erickson said, no, there is no evidence that talent exists. In fact, Mm. underlying his work was something called the monotonic benefits assumption, right? No surprise that didn't become as popular. (laughs) Not as catchy, not as round, not as tidy. But the way you can think of it is that any two people who are at the same level will progress exactly the same amount with the next hour of deliberate practice, right? So that it's, it's someone's level of performance is purely a function of their number of hours they've accumulated of deliberate practice and nothing else. And when you look through the breadth of literature, scientific literature on human skill acquisition, nothing could be farther from the truth. People progress at very different rates, even when they're doing the exact same thing. So it's super important for them to try to find the environments and places where they actually get a good response to the things they're trying. And so his, his feeling was the 10,000 hours, the focus on this exact number was not good, but also the fact that journalists are granting a place for talent sometimes, or that, that Malcolm did, That's also not right. So he was sort of upset with it in a a number of different angles. In 2013, my book, The Sports Gene, came out, which pretty stridently critiqued the work underlying the 10,000 hours. Mm -hmm. Shortly after that, Erickson decided to publish some of the data that I had been asking about about what was the variation around this 10,000 hours. Right, the math behind this seemingly was always suspicious to you. Yeah, and, and that showed, that showed that their original conclusions could not have been correct, that there were some people who practiced less and still made the top level and some people who practiced more and didn't. And I think he nuanced his view in a very important way. So he wrote a book called Peak. In that book, which is a very interesting book, he, he makes this caveat where he says, okay, the techniques I've talked about in my research are really applicable 
to what he called highly developed fields like chess and, you know, playing classical music where the rules are totally clear. They never change. They get passed on from generation to generation. A coach can watch everything you do and tell you how to do it right. And he basically says, by the way, so it doesn't really apply to, you know, um, engineer, consultant, uh, teacher, business person, most of the jobs that all of us have in the world. <laughs> and so to me, that was, that was a responsible thing for him to do, but it was also like the paragraph that kind of like swallows 90% of the public perception about what his work was. The original, you know, so-called 10,000 hour study with the violinists, it started by selecting people for the study who were already in a world-class music academy. This is what statisticians would call a restriction of range. So to give you an example of how this can backfire, I looked at height in the American male adult population versus points scored in the NBA. And you'll not be surprised to learn there's a high positive correlation between adult height among men in the U.S. and points scored in the NBA, <laughs> right? But if you do a study where you restrict your range of subjects in the study to only people who are already in the NBA then the correlation becomes negative because guards score more points. So if you were like a Martian who didn't know anything about basketball, your conclusion from that study would be to tell parents to have shorter kids because they would score more points in the NBA, mm. right? Because there's a negative correlation between height and point score. Inside the NBA itself, yeah. Inside the NBA itself. And when you, so when you don't acknowledge that restriction of range, which is the case in most research on sports expertise, most research, it doesn't track people through development, starts with people who are already at the top. So there are all these problems with making conclusions for everyone from research that only selects the people who are the very best at something already. So that was one of the other issues. So basically, the parallel here is that instead of choosing elite basketball players, Erickson's study had selected elite violinists. That's right. And that doesn't mean it's not a worthwhile study, but it means your conclusions, you can't just extrapolate them to everyone and everyone else in the world. So despite all of these objections and nuances that are now being retrofitted onto this research, of course, the rule becomes wildly profitable and successful. What are the consequences, Dave, of its success? Yeah, I think quite wide and, and international. When I was doing some reporting in Japan, for example, the 10,000 hours idea was very popular there. And so sometimes there was an idea in school that like if a kid wasn't achieving how they should, it was clearly because they hadn't put in enough practice. And for kids that had, say, like learning disabilities, that was disastrous. Mm. I think closer to home, it has led to the acceleration of early specialization in, in everything, but in, in sports for kids, for sure. And I think that has kind of directly backfired, at least for the kids, for the people that the adults that like run leagues where the kids are their customers, uh, it has not backfired. But for sports development, it has backfired because the research is quite convincing that elite athletes tend to have a sampling period early on where they gain these kind of general physical skills, so-called physical literacy. They get to learn about their interests and abilities by trying different things and they delay specializing. Right. So the idea is that because you've been tunnel vision in an attempt to get to the 10,000 hours magic number as soon as possible, you've actually precluded yourself from optimizing your skill development. In the long term. So there was just a brand new study on, out on this, the largest one's ever been done. It was like 6,000. It looked at development of like 6,000 athletes. And it found that Doing the 10,000 hours, you know, specializing really early, you are more likely to win things like a 10 and 12-year-old's championships, you know, like youth and junior stuff. 
but then that is inversely proportional to how likely you are to go to the top level later on. So there's this tension in this area of scientific research that shows that sometimes the things that give you a head start will undermine your long-term development. Mm. And I think that's a really hard thing to internalize. There's sort of three prongs as to why this diversification, as opposed to the early specialization, helps long-term development. One of those is it makes, it makes a developing athlete more resistant to both psychological and physical you know, burnout and injury. So that's one. The second is that there seems to be an advantage toward later skill development, that it's, it's almost like, you know, kids who grow up bilingual have a bit of an advantage for then learning any subsequent language later on. Right. It seems to be similar with sports skills that this diversification gives a, gives a learning advantage. And third, it improves the chance of someone getting good what's called match quality. Match quality is the degree of fit between what you're good at and what you're doing. And it turns out that especially when you're forcing people to, to pick pre-puberty, the chances that you get them in good match quality are just way, 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 way lower. So the longer you can delay that selection process, the more likely you get the right person in the right place. So is there an example somewhere on our planet of a place that has pushed back on the lesson of the 10,000 hours rule and profited because of it? For sure. I mean, I, I think the, one of the examples that I like the most is is Norway, because Norway is a country of, I don't know, about 5 million people, I think. And their last Winter Olympics, Norway topped the medal table, was probably the greatest performance by any country in the Olympics ever. And then they did really well in the summer. I mean, they won things you don't think about associating with Norway, like beach volleyball. You know? <laughs> um, and they they have elite athletes in a lot of different sports in a tiny country, a tiny country. And they banned scorekeeping for kids' sports before the age of 12 mm. so that, that kids aren't as pressured to kind of you know, get as good as quickly as they can so that they can slow down their development. Coaches actually like get in trouble if they get caught <laughs> scorekeeping before age 12. Uh. So Norway, I think, has done a great job. I think the U.S., frankly, has not been forced to do better because we just have more athletes than everyone else. Like I think about the sport I competed in track and field in college, the NCAA system supports like 30 or 40,000 young adults in fairly serious to serious training. That's probably more than the rest of the world combined. Mm. So we can just afford to burn a bunch of people. So I don't think we've had the pressure to sort of optimize individual development. Yeah, Dave, look, you've been traveling the world, pushing back against this rule for thousands upon thousands of hours. <laughs> So I want to take a look at how you've navigated not just Andres Erickson's scholarship, but Malcolm Gladwell's pushback as well after the break. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11th ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code DAILY. That's code DAILY. Visit VividSeats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats. Experience it live.
So Dave, in both of your books, which are excellent, The Sports Gene and In Range, you've been laying out the flaws of all the research we've been discussing here. You've objected to Anders Ericsson. He's objected to you. You've objected to his objection. He tries to nuance that (laughs) objection. And also Malcolm Gladwell's over here making a giant pile of money. And you've pushed back on him. And he's kind of changed as well in response. What was your relationship like with Gladwell? How did that all start? Well, it actually started uh, the first time we ever met was when Daryl Morey invited us to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference to have a debate that was titled 10,000 Hours Versus the Sports Gene. (laughs) We have a very special panel for you today. Today, our panelists, we have Malcolm Gladwell and David Epstein, two critically acclaimed authors. And I think you know why you're here. Two differing theories, two differing arguments. It's not exactly Ali Frazier, but oh, it is for MIT. For MIT, <laughs> it kind of is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the only event where I will ever outdraw Meek Mill on the panel. <laughs> okay, so we're going to start by having I'm going to describe David's argument. David's going to describe my argument, and then we're going to argue with each other's descriptions of each other's argument. Um, Obviously, Gladwell's very clever. Um, yes. and, and I didn't want to get embarrassed on stage. I'd love to hear your description of the 10,000 hour rule because you called it a magic number and a rule and then criticized me for picking people who had only accumulated 11,000 hours. Well, are you saying that I'm, I'm inconsistent in my criticisms? Of course I am. <laughs> I, 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 why would I be otherwise? I had no clue that ten, everyone would care about the 10,000 hour rule. I always think it's fun to take an observation and call it a law or a rule just because it gets people's attention. <laughs> and so I went through reading all, all of his work and, you know, he talked about the importance of early hyper-specialization. So I said, let me go look at what the literature has to say about early specialization particularly. And that's where I saw this research that, oh, actually it's the norm that athletes who go on to become elite actually delay specializing compared to their peers who plateau at lower levels. Mm. And so I brought that up. There's some evidence that some of those people are going through what's called a sampling period, where they're trying a bunch of different things, finding what fits their mentality, what fits their physiology before they focus in on it. That may be another factor in the dangers of hyperspecialization. Actually, if you look at the tennis data. And he said flat out, like, huh, you know, that doesn't fit with what I think. It would be interesting to to think about how you would optimize a national strategy for sports performance, keeping that in mind. I mean, would it make sense then to ban certain kinds of uh, sporting activities for kids below a certain age? That's a great question. And there was... um, And we started talking about these things on our own time. And I found him incredibly, you know, wanting to, to throw out arguments and make me consider them and challenge me, but also very willing to change his, you know, his mind if he was convinced. And then when we were back at Sloan five years later... He said, you know, I think we're on similar ground now. I think I made that error that I conflated two separate things. Large amount of practice being necessary, which I think is true. But I, in the back of my mind, thought that meant specialization, which I now realize is false. So you made me smarter. Oh, Um, thanks. And everyone who reads David's... And so I think we came to find ourselves on quite similar ground. Yeah, this is where I confess that one time when I was walking through Fort Greene, Brooklyn, (laughs) I saw you and a shirtless Malcolm Gladwell, but both of you guys were shirtless, running together. And I immediately texted you and I was like, why are you shirtless and running with a shirtless (laughs) Malcolm Gladwell? And I did not realize... You're running 10,000 hours, man. Yeah, well, first off, beyond accumulating those hours, I did not realize that this would also be a fruitful, intellectual, sparring relationship. It did. I mean, it it turned out to be... 
a very generative relationship. It was with Erickson too. You know, he, he, he critiqued me publicly. I had to, you know, learn how to, how to deal with that also. But I think for both of those individuals, they could have reacted to me differently and I could have reacted to them differently. And I think it would have been acrimonious, you know, as I think some other writers in the 10,000 hour genre did. Mm. But for Erickson and Gladwell, I feel like they, to some degree, enjoyed some of these conversations, even when we were all frustrated with one another. And so they turned into like really generative relationships for me. Yeah, what I'm realizing now is that I have been far too friendly to you for almost 15 years. But that's, that's probably just deference because of how bad I used to beat you in uh, ping pong. Oh, come on. So that, that was more just being cowed than really, you know? <laughs> so Dave, beyond getting better at mini table tennis, the recurring theme of your three appearances <laughs> on ESPN Daily, I feel like there are critics of yours who would say, wait a minute, Tiger Woods exists, right? <laughs> he was playing golf on national television at a super young age. He was super specialized, two, yeah. but yeah, two years old, putting all sorts of deliberate practice time in. Why are you trying to soften the youth of America? <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Um, no, he did. He did. And there are, there's huge variability and there are 10,000 hours these stories, but even Tiger's story, I would say is not as tigery as as people generally think tiger himself said in 2000 that his father he said my father never once asked me to play golf to this day it was always me asking him it's the child's desire to play that matters not the parent's desire to have the child play and in fact when his father gave him uh, a club at seven months old it was just as a toy it wasn't trying to make him become a golfer but tiger was very physically precocious and he started sort of imitating his father's swing and it was really his, his father being blown away by this kind of unusual display of interest and ability that he then responded to that. Whereas most parents take the 10,000 hours and they start trying to engineer that. And there is not only zero evidence that you can engineer that. And by the way, Tiger also played baseball and ran cross country and track. Mm. And there's no evidence that you can engineer that. But the evidence is that when you try, it really backfires in a number of ways. You know, one of the most visible of which is, is in this epidemic of adult style overuse injuries where your kids whose bodies are developing are getting injuries that will curtail their athletic careers for sure, if, if not their life in, a, in an even larger way. But I do want to try and give people hope here, Dave, because the whole magic of the magic number is that you do something a lot, you get something really meaningful in return. And obviously now we have debunked the idea that 10,000 hours is this rule that we should really honor or take seriously in the way we've been sold it. But you know, when it comes to New Year's resolutions, what can you tell people that can give them hope about trying to do something new and different, trying to acquire a skill that can make their life that much more meaningful? Yeah, I think the thing they should know is that New Year's resolutions actually work kind of astoundingly well. You know, I was making some resolutions for myself recently uh, with the new year and was going through the work of a, a Penn professor named Katie Milkman, a psychologist at Penn. And what she finds is that we conceive of our own lives, our inner stories, as, as like punctuated by important events. You know, like when you moved out of your childhood home or when you had a kid or whatever. It's like each of those is like turning the page to a new chapter in a book. And each time you turn a chapter page, you have a bit of a shift of identity that makes it easier for you to, to adopt new behaviors. And that's true even for kind of like smaller sort of arbitrary things as the beginning of a new year. So in her work, she finds that 
that, for example, people are, are more likely to hit the gym at the start of a new year, at the start of a, a new week, or at the start of a new semester, if they're in college, after their own birthday, you know, at, at all of these sort of arbitrary benchmarks. They call it the fresh start effect. The fact is most people's New Year's resolutions, they will not stick to them. But something like 20% of people do, which is way more than the number who stick to resolutions that are just made at some kind of random time in the middle of the year. Mm. And so I think this is a great chance. Definitely make a New Year's resolution. If it fails, fine. But your chances of sticking to it are, are better. Anytime you can engineer a moment, as Katie Milkman calls it, whether that's a flip of the calendar or finding a new coffee shop to write in or something like that, take advantage of it to say, that's the moment when I'll start this new behavior and it's more likely that it'll stick. Yeah, Dave, I, I'm going to be honest with you here. I, I was largely hoping that you would go full contrarian again and actually declare that New Year's resolutions are totally worthless because I'm like, oh, for 10, man, on I'm going to run this year for about a decade now. I'd be happy to work on that with you. Um, but what's your what's your hang up? Well, my hangup is that... Do you start? Like, do you do it for the first week? Yeah, I go out there and I wear my shorts and I have my shirt on because I'm nowhere near the confidence levels of you and Malcolm Gladwell. And uh, then I realize that I don't like this. And then I also realize, secondarily, that I am, in fact, lazy. <laughs> I, I find it funny that you're worried about confidence of taking your shirt off, having worn an orca suit on national television on ESPN. Um, yeah, that, that you'd be worried about that. But you know, um, the thing about <laughs> the thing about an orca suit, Dave, is that its many layers provide great insulation from what you truly don't want the world to see anymore, which is I, my personal story. <laughs> that sounds that sounds like there's a lot of deeper meaning in that. Um, <laughs> but I, I think you should scale your resolution back and say, I will run for the first two months of the year because the fact is your central nervous system starts to coordinate your movements and running starts to feel a lot better after you pass a certain kind of lower threshold. So I think maybe you should make your, your goal a little smaller and then see where you are after two months instead of saying like, I'm just going to start running with no end date. Say, this year I'm going to run for the first two months of the year and see how that goes. Mm. I hate that this podcast has gone from me debunking someone else's theory to me now having to actually commit to exercising. I don't know how we got here. Yeah, and I think you should commit to checking in with your listeners two months from now oh, and no. notes. do it uh, don't, cut this part. don't cut this part yeah i you now know you've got accountability it'll help <laughs> dave epstein thank you for bringing accountability to sports <laughs> science and espn daily always a pleasure thanks for having me i'm pablo torre this has been espn daily i'll talk to you tomorrow